0: tell you, they are just so good. And uh, I truly believe it's because it comes out of their hearts of worship. They're not just worship leaders. Uh, They are worshipers. And so we are very, very privileged and blessed to have them. Well, it's great to be with you here this morning. And I'm going to ask and encourage you to go ahead and get your Bibles or turn on your phones or your iPads, whatever it is you're going to use and we are going to be uh, looking at a journal of conflict in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. And so I almost entitled this uh, message, A Diary of a Conflict, but I thought if I did that, I'd have to hand in my man card. So um, stayed away from that, And uh, because I know that men and women journal, uh, at least they do in, in my family, and so that's where we're gonna be looking today. Um, journaling. I, I, I have uh, I, one of my journals here, and when I say one of, uh, you'll laugh because I am not very consistent. Uh, I try, but um, my journaling habits are uh, not—they're just not that good. I—I um, uh, I, I fail. I'm inconsistent. I'm fearful. Fearful that maybe somebody else will take it and read it. Kind of like when, uh, you know, uh, you think about uh, for girls, especially when they were younger, and girls would keep a diary. And uh, they would be so afraid that their siblings would find it and read it and find out all their secrets. And, you know, in this journal, um, this is the the second one I'm on, just because I've used it to take sermon notes in. I've used it to write down prayer requests. I've used it to uh, try to highlight some other messages that that I might have uh, heard or read, and so I wanted to jot some notes down. And um, uh, I I even do like a to-do list in here. And then I'll throw in some of my thoughts with God, and uh, it's been helpful. It's it's really been something that's uh, been so beneficial to me and this is probably the longest I've been doing this now uh, for these last few months, because I would always start and stop. So I don't know if you're like that or not, but um, when I think about journaling, you just see that uh, you know, it's a place where you can write down your thoughts and your feelings. You can write down your observations and insights. Maybe you write down your, your impressions of something or someone. Maybe you write down your fears or frustrations. Maybe you write down uh, some dreams and hopes that you have for the future. You write whatever comes to your mind, good or bad. Maybe you're reflecting on God's majesty because you're moved by the beauty of His creation. Maybe you're just writing about you're you're in a desert land, and you're just hoping that God's going to meet you where you're at. We all write for different reasons, but um, uh, I hope that today, as we, as we look at a, this journal of conflict, that you'll be able to uh, see some, some good things within it. Um, uh, there's a lot going on in this passage, and so I want to make sure that uh, I get through it quickly without getting sidetracked but also not missing the key major points. Uh, so uh, once we get into it, I've, I've put chapter titles at the top of the slides in just a few more slides because uh, I think that'll make it easier for you to follow along. I know a chapter title seems more like a book than it does a journal, but um, I just thought it would be, benefit you uh, so that I wouldn't... Uh, um, take you off track with um, me kind of going all over the place if I do that. Uh, Let's get started. I'm going to start reading in uh, verses 22 and 23. And I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm going to take it by chunks. So if you follow along with me, here we go. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him so that that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, "Can this be the Son of David?" So as we start our, our journal, we're going to get right to chapter one. And chapter one, I have titled and, and these are going to be very simple, because you'd be coming up with these same titles, but Jesus healed. That's the title for chapter One. Why? Because in verse 22, we see this situation, the circumstance, that there was a demon-oppressed man who was blind and he was mute. So he couldn't hear, he couldn't speak, he couldn't see. But all of that, we kind of were in, kind of led to believe by the original writing that that was because he was demon oppressed. And so in this setting, we don't know who brought him to this place. But I have a feeling it was probably the Pharisees. Because just back in verses nine through 10, uh, just a, a few verses earlier in this chapter, Pastor Roger talked about this. It says in verse nine, he went on from there and entered the synagogue, this is Jesus, and a man was there with a withered hand and they, which is the Pharisees, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So they've already tried to set Jesus up once and they failed. So I I believe even though it, it doesn't say specifically here I believe that that they also brought this demon-oppressed, blind, deaf, and mute individual to see, oh, what's Jesus going to do about this one? And, And as we see in this passage, it says, and he healed him. Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, in that healing, that means he exercised that demon or demons. We don't know if it was one or if there's many. We don't know. But, But Jesus exercised those demons and also granted him the ability to see, the ability to speak. And... Matthew in this, in this passage, he minimizes this miracle. I mean, if that was you, don't you think that would be something pretty terrific? I know I would. I'd be like, "Wow, can't you write more about this?" But he just kind of minimizes it, and he just says, "And Jesus healed him." And it says, "So that the man spoke and saw." So then let's go to the next chapter. Chapter 2 is this is when the people responded. And we see how they responded. And all the people were amazed. Uh, the NIV says astonished. The, the wording there is something that I mean, it really knocked them with amazement. It's something that it was almost indescribable for them. It was an awe moment. Like, whoa, what just happened? I mean, did, did what happened really happen? That's the kind of amazement that, that we get from this. And it says, and, and it brought them to this point where they spoke, and, and they questioned. And Matthew records this, can this be the son of David? Now, when you read it, you kind of feel like maybe they're coming, they're coming on board and joining Jesus. They're, they're jumping on board with his message and his mission of repentance and of, of turning to God. But the way that it's worded in the Greek, it, it doesn't have the same flavor. As, as we might see it if we're just reading it plain. It has more of the tone of, of, can this be the son of David? Not like, could, could Jesus be it? Could he be that Messiah we're waiting for? No, the tone is more like, this guy? Really? And here's why. There was different expectations of what that Messiah was going to be. See, for the Jews of that day, they thought, uh, picture this. Picture, uh, do you remember the cartoon Aladdin? Right? Right? And all of a sudden he comes on in because the genie creates this great parade and Prince Ali see Ali Ababwa. Right? And he just goes on and it's so over the top with with everything just going and fireworks even and everything, right? Well, guess what? That's kind of what what the Jews were hoping for and expecting. They were expecting somebody who was so much bigger in life who was going to come on in as a conquering hero, who was going to come on in and rescue them from the Romans, who was going to lead an army that was just going to say, we're indestructible. And, and then they see Jesus. And they can't deny That he's performing incredible miracles. Miracles that the coming Messiah was prophesied to to bring healing. But they just couldn't wrap their head around it. Because, wait, this guy, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Wait, he's a Galilean. Isn't that the carpenter's son? So they're struggling and they're wrestling with this and and yet i'd like to think it's still a flicker that well can can this be the son of david yeah but guess what i think that just that recognition just that possibility Just that, just little, tiny minutia of a chance that rocked the Pharisees. They wanted no part of the people thinking like that. Because they've already been dealing with Jesus. They've already seen Jesus do incredible healings. And Jesus has confounded them. Jesus has been able to stop them in their tracks. Jesus has been able to refute them. And they're going, man, no way. Uh, great. Here we go. We're going to lose the people. We're going to lose them. And so, because of their response, we go to chapter 3. And we see the Pharisees' reaction. We see how they reacted. And so in, in verse 24, it says this: But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. We see three things here: one, they could not deny that the demon or demons, singular, plural, that they had been exercised. Not exercise as in getting a workout. They were exorcised as in, see you later, buddy. So long. So they even recognized that. They couldn't deny it. And in seeing Jesus perform this healing. And and when he exercised the demons, all of a sudden now there's a healing. Now I think they're going, oh my goodness. How does he do this? They're still trying to figure out how Jesus is doing this, and they are so blinded to the fact that he's doing it because he's the Messiah that you've been waiting for, that the Old Testament has been talking about for centuries. He's finally here, and yet they're like, yeah, no, no, can't be. In fact, even though they got to see so many incredible miracles, even though they got to experience Jesus' love and compassion and mercy, even though they got to see The one person who is truly able to live out the law. They just couldn't bring themselves to accept it. They could not bring themselves to accept it. And so here's what they do. On the spot, they made a decision. All of a sudden, everything else they tried, it wasn't working. They thought they could outsmart him. He was smarter than them. They thought they could trick him. No, he's not going to be tricked. They thought that they could create circumstances with people and in situations, and, and with the scribes who were the lawyers of the law. And they, Jesus just befuddled them every single time. And here's a point where the Pharisees they changed course because their response, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, just a little background, just a little bit about the Pharisees. Because you know what? Here's the thing. Um, They really didn't start off with bad intentions. They didn't. I mean, I'm so quick personally to want to just pound them, right? Until I start seeing the the Pharisee in me. The Pharisees were the conservatives of the day. Now don't try and, and read into that. I'm just telling you what it's worth. The Sadducees were the other Uh, main political party and they were the liberals of the day. Each commentary, uh, each commentator uh, spells that out. They, uh, They were authorities over the written law but not just the written law. They were authorities also of the oral traditions. In fact, that's what got them going sideways is because they would put the written law, God's Old Testament, on par with the oral traditions, meaning whatever rabbi was teaching, they would lift up that rabbi's teaching on equal par with God's word. And you know what? That is idolatry. That is, uh, that is just... Incomprehensible but that's who they were, and they loved um, they loved talking about all the different things, but these guys they would add rules upon rules upon rules to what God's word said. There were um, thirty nine different rules for for some of their different statements, and you just were like, Come on uh, 39 rules just for what work was forbidden on the Sabbath, okay? And Pastor Roger talked about this Sabbath last week. Here's how crazy things would get when they'd get caught up in the minutia of details. And hopefully, you know, I'm not going to be caught up in all that. I just want to share this one because I, I just thought, man, this is, if this is what they were like, oh, my goodness, Here's one of their laws that they upheld, according to their oral law, that uh, a person was allowed to spit on rocky ground on the Sabbath, but he could not spit on soft ground or dust of the earth. And do you know why? Here's, Here's where they went and they took, God's laws, and they would make these man-made laws. Here's why that couldn't happen. Because the spit might move the dirt just a little bit, and that could constitute plowing. Because by spitting on soft dirt, it might move the dirt a little, and that might make this itty-bitty little furrow. And the Pharisees said, oh, you can't do that. You just broke a law. That wasn't God's written law. That was their oral law. And they had so many other uh, crazy laws like that. And it was, you know, Jesus just couldn't stand it because he's like, man, I'm trying to make things simple here. They try to catch him and, hey, master, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself everything else summed up right there. Like, oh. I mean, they had made over 600 laws from the Ten Commandments. It was crazy. But these guys were scared. And so when when they say in this verse that it's by Beelzebub or Beelzebul, that was a frequent slur. And if you look back in chapter 9, verse 34, it, it comes after Jesus heals a, a mute, demon-possessed man. They say he does it by Beelzebub. And then in, in chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, remember when he was sending them out in that chapter? And, and he tells them that I, if I, who am the head of the household of God, am called Beelzebub who's the head of the household of demons, uh, that you guys can expect the same thing. And then here we are in, in this chapter, when they say only by Beelzebub. so now they are really starting to hammer in. He says that this man Jesus casts out demons. And I love how Jesus then goes on the attack. So in chapter four, I've just titled it Jesus uh, Rebuked, and it's not that he was rebuked, but boy, did he do some good rebuking. So in verse 25, it says this. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So right off the bat, he's saying every kingdom, every city, and every house. He went from the big, the kingdom, to the city, right to each and every house. You know what? If it's divided within itself, it cannot stand. It, it's, it, the words that are used there is laid to waste. It's nothing. There, there's no structure. There's, there's nothing there. Because if you have in-house battling it happened in Jesus' days. It happens in our day where we've got people who are just constantly like this. It happens in our government. It happens in all kinds of places. You know what? Unfortunately, I'm so sad when I see it. It happens on social media. And there's Christians who are doing this. If I wasn't a Christian, guess what? I wouldn't want to be a part of what you say you're a part of, Christian? If I just see you battling each other and and trying to to win an argument. Where's Jesus' love? Where's his compassion? Where's his mercy? Where's his forgiveness? So a house divided, it will not stand. In verse 26, Matthew writes, and if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? You know, Jesus just, when we read it, he makes it seem so smart, and so simple. He's saying, hey, any house that's divided, it's going to be a mess. If a husband and wife aren't on the same page, guess what? Their kids are going to go off in who knows what direction. And right here he's saying, and if Satan casts out Satan, it's like, come on, guys, really, this is the best you got? I mean, I mean, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. I just kind of think about, you know, a person who's, be quiet. No, you be quiet. No, shut up. Oh, I'm not going to shut up. You be shut up. You know, it's like you're, you're just fighting with yourself. It makes no sense. You get nowhere. And Jesus is trying to point out, he goes, come on, how, how, could, how could Satan's kingdom stand? He's not defending Satan. He knows Satan's the enemy, but he's saying, guys, really? You think Satan and I are in cahoots? We're working together. He's uh, getting uh, men and women to uh, be possessed, and I'm freeing them from that. I'm healing them from that. But you guys really think we're doing this together? The absurdity, the absurdity. Verse 27, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Oh, man, this, this is where Jesus, I mean, he, he just throws it down on these Pharisees. He's, he's letting them know if, if Jesus casts out demons with Satan, what about the Pharisees' disciples? Because they're trying to do that too. The only thing that we see about that is, is in Acts chapter 19, the sons of Sceva. And they, like, oh, ooh, we want to perform this exorcism that that Paul does. And so it's like, yeah, so we want to exorcise these demons out of you by the name of Jesus that that Paul preaches about. And the demon-possessed guy, seven guys went into the house. The demon-possessed guy goes, okay, Jesus, I know. Paul, yeah, I know. Who are you? And he proceeds to strip them of their clothes, beat them up, and they go running out of the house naked and beaten up by one guy. Because he's like, you guys are fakes. You can say the words, but he's not real in your life. I know who he is. When Jesus comes around, I'm going to hide. I'm going to do whatever I can. Because... Uh, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to have to be uh, told to go into some pigs or some other animals or cast out forever. So if, if Jesus is, is casting out demons by Beelzebub, then what about the Pharisees' disciples? The word there is sons, but that just means, hey, by your team, And and here's the dilemma, because Jesus then says, therefore, they will be your judges. And here's the dilemma, folks. Um, If Jesus casts out demons with Satan, A, if they say Satan, then uh, they would have to admit that they, too, wouldn't be righteous, that they, too, were working hand-in-hand with Satan, and no disciple of a Pharisee is ever going to admit that. But if they don't say that, the other alternative is, is that if they say God, then they make Jesus' point. And then they make the Pharisees out to be liars. So no matter how this question is answered, Jesus wins, the Pharisees lose. They're in a no-win situation, and they put themselves in it because they refuse to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the only and true Messiah. Look at verse 28, Uh, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice he says there, it is by the Spirit of God that Jesus did these miracles. The Spirit working in Jesus to do these miracles. Jesus doesn't claim to do these miracles on his own. He's doing them with the power of the Holy Spirit. And also, notice what he states here. He says, if by the Spirit of God, then guess what? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, it's come upon you doesn't mean that all of a sudden it came upon the Pharisees. Oh, no, 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 no. They were so far away from it, it's not even funny. But Jesus is just saying that the kingdom of God, here I am. I'm here. And the kingdom's with me. That was a powerful, powerful rebuke. Now verse 29 chapter 5 Jesus restrained He wasn't restrained Jesus restrained Look at verse 29 Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man Then indeed the man uh, then indeed he may plunder the house So Jesus is using this example but he's pointing out that, hey, Satan is the strong man here. So how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder it? Because a strong man, he's going to have it protected. He's going to be like, hey, nobody's going to come and mess with me. I mean, it's kind of like I got guard dogs, I got all kinds of cameras, I got guns, I got all kinds of stuff you don't even know about. No one's going to come and mess with me. Why? Because he's the strong man. But Jesus says, that someone, he binds him. He binds him first. And so what Jesus is claiming here is that he is more powerful. There's nothing that Satan can do to keep Jesus out. There's nothing that can keep Jesus from binding Satan. And keeping him from doing, wrecking havoc on people. And Jesus goes on to say, and, and when he's bound, then guess what? I get to plunder his house. I get to take whatever I want. I, I believe that this is uh, uh, kind of referring to, I get to bring back those who have been oppressed. Oppressed those who have been possessed, those who have been crippled, those who have been just bound up, I get to free them. Because the strong man, he ain't got nothing on me. He's got nothing on me. I have all the power. Chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus' request. Now, request is a really soft word, but I was trying to go with a whole bunch of R's, so I'm just telling you honestly right there. But the truth of the matter is this is a challenge. This really isn't a request. Because in, in verse 30, Jesus says this, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Look at that again. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is calling for a decision right here. He's calling for a decision right here. He's basically saying, Are you with me or not? And he knew the Pharisees weren't. But listen. I don't want you to think that no Pharisees ever did. Nicodemus did. Apostle Paul did. Those are two guys who are Pharisees. But Jesus is saying, hey, you're either going to be helping me gather. You're going to help me gather. To go on out, and and again, this is after Jesus had already sent out the 12 and the 70. You're either going to help me to gather my people, the Israelites, as well as the Gentiles, to come into a relationship with me, the living God, or you're going to be working against me and you're going to be scattering, you're going to be sending people in all kinds of different directions but you don't have the luxury of just, well, I'll think about it. Jesus doesn't give that option. Are you in or not? Make a choice. Then we get to chapter 7. And even though this passage, and we will get to it, uh, uh, is on the unforgivable sin. I chose to rather let's let's look at that Jesus forgives. Look with me, chapter twelve, verse thirty-one and thirty-two. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The first part of verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. I just told you, Paul. And I put the passage here of 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 14. And it reads, This is Paul writing to Timothy, his words. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Look at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Jesus forgives He goes on to say, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now look at verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Here's Peter. In Mark chapter 14, verses 71 and 72, we read where Peter denies Jesus three times. Look at what it says. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. He was so upset that Luke records that he cursed and swore. He... he, brought a curse on himself, and he swore to vehemently deny knowing Jesus. I do not know this man of who you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And it says, and he broke down and wept. That could have been the end of Peter. But praise God, we get to see John 21. And we get to see how Jesus restores a man who was so broken, who felt so shameful, so remorseful, probably felt like, "Uh, uh, Jesus died, I'm I'm never going to be forgiven this. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Take care of my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And Peter's kind of like, Lord, you've asked me this three times already. You know I love you. But Jesus did that for Peter's sake, not not for Jesus' sake. He knew Peter loved him. He just wanted to make sure, guess what? You may have denied me three times, that's forgiven. I give forgiveness when you ask. I'm about restoration. I'm about transformation. And Jesus forgives. On this next slide, uh, I just put down some words liar, thief, cheater, adulterer, promiscuous, gossip, slander. Addict, lust, anger, murder, idolatry, malice, disrespect, and the last one, legalism. Jesus forgives all of it. Where would you put your name next to? I tell you, there's, uh, there's about five or six places where King David would put his name next to. I tell you, there's a pretty good amount where I'd have to put my name next to. And I'm so thankful. And when I think of First John 1, 8 and 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. His faithfulness and his justice, he forgives us. Jesus forgives. Now, I know you might be thinking, oh, but there's one he doesn't forgive. Well, maybe the unpardonable sin. That's chapter 8. Because he says in, in 31b and 32b, he says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. In 32b, he says, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. I found a really succinct definition that I'm going to leave up on the screen for you. It's not long. It is so short, but it's packed. I want you to look at it with me. By John Wolver. And he defined the unpardonable sin with this, attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. The unpardonable sin is attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. It's giving Satan credit for something that only God should receive credit for. Now, Warren Wiersbe also uh, gave three little things, points, on what we should consider when we think about the unpardonable sin. And do I think we can commit the unpardonable sin today? Um, No. Because you had to be a witness of Jesus doing those miracles at that time. And then saying, that's not you Jesus, that's Satan. In this specific instance, I kinda go with with, um, some other commentators, some other Bible scholars, I'm not a Bible scholar, but after trying to look it all over, I'm like, this specific instance, in this context, That cannot happen today. But are there um, different situations in which unpardonable sin? Yeah, there is. Warren Wiersbe uh, writes these. He says, number one, it's a sin of the heart, not lips. You have to understand, it's something that's inside of you, not just what comes out. Because here's the thing what comes out comes out from what's inside of you. Look at verses 34 and 35 of our passage. Jesus calls, You brood of vipers, you venomous snakes, you you animals with poison. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So it's a sin of the hearts. That's what we need to consider when we think about the unpardonable sin. Number two, it is a sin committed in light of great evidence. So for someone to commit the unpardonable sin, it's it's because they've got all this evidence in front of them and they're still saying, well, I don't care. I'm still not gonna believe in Jesus. Some of the greatest minds, supposedly, of our world are are, are self-acclaimed atheists. And they are so wrong. They have all the evidence. Just like the Pharisees when Jesus kept performing miracle after miracle after miracle, and then Pastor Roger will even hit on it next week. It's like, hey, can you show us a sign? How much more do you need, folks? I mean, how much more do you need? So when you're committing the unpardonable sin, it's because you are willfully denying all the evidence that you have seen or heard or been told about. You're denying the Spirit's imprint on you, trying to help you to see. I love Romans where people are without excuse in chapter 1. They can see God in creation, but they're like, nope, nope, don't see him. Don't want to see him. And Wiersbe says, point number three, it is a sin of willful, persistent unbelief and final rejection of Christ. See, Jesus forgives uh, right up until we breathe our last breath. I think of Jesus offering forgiveness while he's dying on the cross. Forgive them, Father, if they don't know what they're doing. He's offering forgiveness for them, and they haven't even asked for it. And while he's up there, there's two thieves. One says, hey, come on, if you're this Messiah guy, get us down from here. This hurts. And the other guy tells him they're both criminals, and the other guy said, man, we're up here because we deserve this. This man's done nothing. And, and simple act of Faith, he's Jesus. Can you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? He didn't have to pray this long prayer. He recognized who Jesus was, and Jesus knew it. And he said, "Yep, from this day forward, you got it." So some of you are, are going to be uh, thinking, "I can wait a little longer." Well, maybe you can. Maybe you can't. I'd I'd hate to take that chance myself. And I just want to close. What's written in your journal? What's in your journal? The journal of your heart. Is there unresolved conflict? Is there uh, some Phariseeism? Legalism? Are you judgmental? Do you want to try to fix everybody else and ignore the sickness you've got going on in your own body, in your own mind, in your own spirit? Is there unconfessed sin? Listen, I ask these things because, guess what? You don't want to just hear a message each week. And if you do, you are wrong. Because when Pastor Roger opens up God's word, it's not just so you can hear what he studied. When I'm preaching, it's not so you can hear what we've studied. It's so that when we share God's word, the Holy Spirit comes to you and he brings conviction so that there's going to be a desire to change, to be transformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. Not to hear another good talk, or not to rate it, well, that one's only a C, Craig, because, you know, I really kind of don't like you that much, but I'll put up with you, or anything like that. God's wanting to do some heart surgery. Because that's the only way then he can help you with your mouth. the only way he can help you with your mind so I'm asking what's keeping you from taking action Jesus is gonna wait his patience is incredible but you know what you just might not have the time let's pray Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story. For Jesus' desire to gather lost souls, his desire to have as many as possible to experience. His forgiveness His love His mercy and eternal life with Him forever God help us to take heed and to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and minds and help us to take a step however small or large it may be. We give it all to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.